0: Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. Before the pandemic, there was an achievement gap in American schools that particularly affected low-income and minority students. There were disparities in how school systems and individual schools were funded, and issues such as homelessness and food insecurity touched the lives and learning of too many students. A year or even more of virtual classes exacerbated inequities, Highlighting how everything from broadband access to child care, housing and employment challenges could create barriers to positive educational outcomes and change the course of a child's life. As a country, how did we get to this moment? And how do we build a better future for America and all of its children? The Education Trust, a national nonprofit, for more than 20 years has supported efforts that expand equity in education from preschool through college, increase college access for historically underserved students, engage diverse communities, and spur political and public action. Tara Wallen is the Education Trust's Associate Director for preschool through 12th grade policy team, with a portfolio that includes everything from providing technical assistance to developing recommendations for federal and state policies, all with a goal of equity. After a year of COVID, The Education Trust and Wallen certainly have a lot of ground to make up. So welcome to Equal Time, Tara. So nice to have you with us and with our listeners. I'm excited to be here. Great. So uh, we have so many uh, things dealing with us after a year of COVID, but how did we get to this moment? Because COVID exacerbated challenges that the American educational system is facing, But there were already equity issues and educational disparities. So, can you walk us through some of these issues? Sure. I mean,
1: I think, you know, we can go all the way back to really Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. And I think a lot of your listeners or others know that this is this seminal moment in the American education system where. We supposedly desegregated schools and made sure that all students had access to resources. And I think what you and I might know is we've never fulfilled the core promises of that decision. And since then, we have always struggled to make sure that students of color have equal access to opportunities and resources that they need to succeed. I think some of your other episodes have dug into this, but we can think a lot about um slavery through Jim Crow, all of those periods of time have had implications for how students of color in particular are treated by our education system, separate and unequal, although we've convinced ourselves that somehow we had become integrated and provided equal resources.
0: And when you look at that history, where at a certain time it was really illegal for Black folks to learn anything, you are even coming out of that tradition.
1: That's absolutely right. And we see this play out in different ways, right? We saw, you know, examples of lawmakers who would rather close schools than serve any Black students. We saw school boards deny the enrollment of Black students in white schools. We saw, and what we continue to see often, is white flight. We saw white families leave public school systems or form their own systems. Um, In the South, sometimes referred to as segregation academies, Mm -hmm. right? We saw those things play out. We saw some improvement happen. And then, frankly, there are more students sitting in segregated schools now than there were, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And we've seen some of that be exacerbated. So that's kind of the historical context. But also, in the more recent past, right, when we, you, you mentioned kind of what inequities were there before March of 2020, right, before COVID hit. And I think we see disparities that really start before students even enter the K-12 system. So as we think about early childhood and uh, preschool programs or child care, what we see is that students of color face more barriers to receiving high-quality childcare and early learning. We see income disparities, right? Um, In thinking care can cost up to 116% of a low-income family's total income. But too few families receive financial assistance to make sure that their children have access to those critical resources that become before age five, before you're even entering kindergarten in your state. And then what we see happen is that those inequities are just continue into the K-12 system. And so we see that K-12 students, you know, one of the things we often hear about is funding, right? And are we putting too much money in public schools? Are we not putting enough money in public schools? But I think there's a really important conversation to be had about, even for the money we are putting in, are we doing it equitably? And what we see is that districts with the most Black and Latino and Native students receive about $1,800 less per student than those of districts with more white and affluent peers. And so it's hard to understand $1,800, but if you think about a school of 500 kids That school that has more Black, Latino, and Native students is getting about a million dollars a year less. And so then it shouldn't be surprising you see gaps in access to things like advanced coursework, gaps in access to strong and diverse teachers, right? Because those things are interwoven. That money isn't the only resource that matters. But it is a resource that matters because it can open opportunity.
0: Yeah, definitely. You've given in that answer so much to dig into, and I want to take it one by one. First, you were talking about the systemic racism of this past year in other areas that reflected in the education system, in everything from healthcare to housing to employment, because we saw so many essential workers be parents of color. How does systemic racism in education? fit into uh, all those, how is it a reflection of all those other policies uh, that were entrenched and that were exacerbated in this past year?
1: Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. We know communities of color face disproportionate death and illness caused by COVID. That means those students face disproportionately losing people in their lives. They disproportionately face the economic impact of this crisis, right? Both that they have families who are essential workers and they were likely to be people who may have lost their employment, right? So we have kind of two different versions of that happening. But as we think specifically about education, something like the transition to remote or online learning, right? We know that students of color and students from low-income backgrounds, English learners, were less likely to have access to high-speed internet and devices they needed to continue learning, right? Mm -hmm. So pre-pandemic, There are estimates that about 12 million students suffered from what was called the homework gap, right? They didn't have access to the devices or the internet speed that they needed to do things remotely. Newer estimates from this winter estimate it might actually be closer to 16 million students. And so while we've seen investments over the last year and a half in progress, that's just a really tangible example of how some other problems in our infrastructure and community impacted kids and their educational experience over the last year.
0: Yeah. Another thing you talked about uh, in that answer was funding. And it's kind of a really complicated issue in a sense, because in Washington, D.C., as an example, before the pandemic, they D.C. had the second highest per pupil expenditure of any major school district in the country, but it still had a huge uh, achievement gap and failing rate of students. So uh, if you explain that a little bit and talk about the role money does play as you talked about a little bit.
1: Yeah, so I think it's important to know, you know, research shows that funding does matter, right? The the more you invest, often the better outcomes you see. But I think what's important is not to limit ourselves to a conversation just about how much money is being spent, but how well it is being spent. And how well both in terms of what are the services, resources, opportunities that that money is being used for, but also how well is it being used in terms of equity? Is it actually going to the schools that need it the most? And -hmm. what we see in D.C. and other places is that often schools and communities with more affluent students, more white students, receive more funding than those of communities of color or schools that are serving students with higher needs. We know that students from low-income backgrounds, English learners, students with disabilities have additional needs that require additional resources in terms of funding. And what we often see is that state and local systems don't make those distinctions and they're not actually putting the money in the places that they're needed the most.
0: Yeah. So, uh, how does uh, inequities in housing policy play into the problem since property taxes have a, a lot to do with it and determine school funding to a great degree?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, we started talking this a little bit about the legacy of slavery and the Jim Crow South, right? A part of that, and I'm not a housing expert, right? But when we talk about things like redlining and we talk about banking, right, those set up certain neighborhoods to be cut off from resources and also segregated our communities. And we see the spillover that in education, for the reason you just said, that most of our state and local funding comes through things like property taxes or property wealth. And so the communities who have accrued that wealth over time Are seeing that in their education systems. They're seeing those resources, and other communities that haven't are seeing that dearth of resources.
0: Yeah, Yeah, and it's generational. So I want to turn a little bit to some of the policies' solutions. Now, the Biden administration's COVID relief package included hefty increases in the education department's annual budget, a one year expansion of the child tax credit. And now the infrastructure bill that they're trying to get together would include even more funds to rebuild schools and for workforce development. So could you talk about what policies are working and which should be prioritized? What would you like to see?
1: Sure. So I think you know, we are, we're following along closely with everyone else to see what comes of the next appropriations. You know, we're seeing the House of Representatives take action this week. We're hoping to see increases in resources, particularly for communities that are serving low-income students. And we're glad to see the Biden administration has proposed some increases. But I think just even for the money that is already in states and districts' hands, the American Rescue Plan that was signed into law in early March provides about $130 billion for K-12 education. And so just thinking in scope, that means over the last year, the federal government has provided nearly $200 billion for K-12 education. That's about double what was provided after the 2008 recession And it's, you know, almost four times the Department of Education's budget. So there are a lot of resources that are coming to states and districts now, even before we learn more about if there will be more resources tied to infrastructure or the American Families Mm -hmm. Plan. But I think the thing that we want to see, um, a couple of things. I think, one, we want to make sure that that funding is actually used equitably. It's being driven down to states and districts based on kind of um, their Title One is the federal program, but whether they serve low-income students. So there's some, some built-in equity that their resources are being targeted to communities with greater need. But then when, once it gets down to the district, how is it going to be targeted to students that need the most support? And that's, you know, they need support academically. They need support social and emotionally, mental health support, physical health support. How are districts identifying those students and targeting the money, I think, is, the you know, priority one. I think the other thing is what kind of research-driven strategies are there using? And we have highlighted kind of three big strategies we think are really important. One is focusing on building strong relationships between adults in schools and between adults and students, and frankly, thinking about rebuilding or building trust between schools and families. I think that's mm-hmm. going to be a core, um, important priority. I live in Washington, D.C., our students here have been home for the last year and a half. Most of them have not had access to any in-person learning, and they're going to be coming back to in-person learning for the first time in the fall. How are, how are communities building trust mm-hmm. um, and taking time to, frankly, re- rebuild some of those relationships? But then on top of that, how are they providing targeted intensive tutoring, and how are they thinking about expanding learning time into the summer or during the school year or during holiday breaks? So students
0: get the extra time, frankly, we need to make up for. Yeah, well, we've talked about the policy from the top, but from what you're saying, a lot of these policies and needs are locally driven. So um, is it policy best set by local and state governments and boards uh, or is it this federal intervention really needed? Uh, how should the money be allocated? And, and talk a little bit about how these local and state governments and boards really have to get into to setting policy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we think it's critical that the federal government provided resources that, frankly, many local communities can't get on their own, right? And that's, a, that's an important role here. And that the federal government to put some parameters around those resources. So making sure they were targeted towards communities with higher needs and requiring, for example, that states and districts set aside some of their funding to address the lost instructional time students have. So some parameters that provide them some flexibility for communities to identify what's going to work best for them. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important that as state and district leaders think about how to best leverage those federal resources, that they're actually engaging their communities in what they need and want to see, right? We've seen a lot of research about the likely impacts on students' academic learning over the last year and a half. We've seen some survey data and some other data about the impacts on students' social emotional health, right? The increased stress and anxiety many students felt. But that looks a little different for every community and every student. So state and district leaders are going to need to be thinking hard about both how they're getting input from their communities and then how, as they're trying to implement these strategies, they're over time looking at what's working and what's not working, and they're trying something different. So a lot of this really is going to come into, you know, on the ground, what's happening in school districts.
0: Well, let's talk about that a little bit because you talked about trust is a big issue. Schools, parents, teachers, students, and, um, and you also talked about getting input. And some folks have felt they haven't had enough input because let's face it, uh, some of these issues really persisted before covid we we knew about disproportionate discipline policies uh the black girls how they were uh, suspended at higher rates how the homeless and and the disabled were treated uh, the availability of advanced classes in certain schools uh you know that there were so many things like this that it's going to have to you know, go back to policies that persisted. So, could you talk a little bit about uh, what is your plan to bring equity to these needs?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things we've talked a lot about is that as districts are planning with their communities how to use these resources, how are they thinking not just about the very specific, um, specific needs that were maybe exacerbated during COVID? Right. So I think there has always been a gap in something like internet access, but COVID really shined a spotlight on that. And we saw a lot of people move quickly to, to get devices or hotspots into families' hands. But as you're saying, there were inequities that existed before COVID. And if you are taking those into account and you're not trying to address them, these resources aren't going to do what we hope they would do. So I think, for example, I think discipline is, is a great example to bring up. We've done a lot of work at the Education Trust with organizations like the National Women's Law Center to highlight the very issue that you talked about, which is particularly Black girls are disproportionately disciplined and excluded from learning. If districts aren't thinking about that as they come back into school in the fall and they put in place something like evidence-based tutoring or extended learning time, which could be really helpful strategies, but then they continue to exclude Black girls from school, they're not going to see the benefits of those interventions. And so I think well, an important thing to start with, frankly, is for districts and schools to be looking at their data that existed pre-COVID and even during COVID to see where they already have gaps and how maybe they can use some of these resources to address those issues. So maybe when they're seeking input on how to use their American Rescue Plan funds, they also think about revisiting their discipline policies. And they engage stakeholders on what they want to see different about discipline so that that money actually drives better outcomes.
0: Yeah. And what difference can more teachers of color make? Because that's another issue that's been brought up when it comes to equity for children of color.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to know that, you know, about 20% of our nation's teachers are teachers of color, but about half of our students in our public schools are students of color. So there's a very clear gap that needs to be addressed in terms of the representation in the front of the classroom looking like their representation sitting in desk in the classroom. And so what we know from research, frankly, is that a diverse leader or diverse educator leads to better outcomes, particularly for students of color, better academic outcomes. Those students are more likely to be engaged. They're more likely to graduate on time. But it's also beneficial to students, white students, to see people of color leading their classrooms and to learn from them as well. So we would love to see people thinking about how to use these American Rescue Plan funds to expand the pipeline of educators, right? There's something called Grow Your Own Programs, which is really thinking about people like paraprofessionals or other staff members working in the school who might not be quite be teachers yet. How can some of this funding be used to help those folks who are more likely to be people of color, who are interested in becoming teachers? How could this some of this funding be used to support that and actually help those educators? those folks become teachers um, so that students see more people that look like
0: them. Yeah, this leads into something that is, of course, huge right now. Just as uh, kids are coming out of COVID, out of this year, you have this new big debate in schools around the country. Uh, I'm based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and there were parents that just showed up at a, a meeting really talking about how race is discussed and the history of racism and systemic racism is discussed in the classroom, and um, you know, let's talk about this current fight over how history uh, is taught and how that might affect the educational success uh, of children of all races, minority children who may or may not see role models in history presented, and of course, as you said, white children as well. Um, How is that relevant to the discussion about whether education is going to be successful for all children?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question, right? And we're seeing this confluence of events happening as we're thinking about both students coming back to school and we're seeing, you know, just frankly, partisan, politically driven efforts to dismiss and ignore the systemic racism that we know exists, right? We started this off talking about gaps in access to resources, um, exorbitant use of exclusionary discipline for specific populations of students, right? We see this playing out in the American educational system. And any effort to erase stories, obstacles, trials, and triumphs of people of color is going to be harmful to all students, both students of color and white students. And, you know, we're alarmed, frankly, by the trend that we've seen Across the country. We have worked a lot to think about with our advocates how do we push for more culturally diverse curriculum and teaching that addresses the role of systemic racism. And you know, we the history of America is a tension between our founding ideals and extraordinary success and the founding realities. The fact that we built in these discriminatory and racist structures into our systems. And if we're not teaching students to understand those and unpack those, they're not going to be prepared um, to work in a diverse world. They're not going to have the skills and the, you know, the knowledge that they need to succeed in the
0: future. Yeah, I I notice how passionate you are when you talk about the classroom. And I know you, you have a background, you worked at the U.S. Department of Education, but you were also a teacher. So how has that broad range of experience affected your own vision, and your own advocacy at the Education Trust.
1: Yeah, that's, that's right. I come back to my first job was as a high school teacher in Louisiana. And frankly, you know, one of the interesting, I grew up in Iowa. You don't have to know much about Iowa to assume that I did not go to a very diverse school, right? And so when I say specifically, right, like white students also need this, I didn't learn a lot of the history that I wish I had learned. I didn't learn a lot about success and triumphs of people of color and particularly black people. Those weren't the people that were spotlighted in my classrooms or to understand how some of these things, some of the inequities we see now and the racism, frankly, was baked into our structures. And then I moved as a young adult to Louisiana and taught at a school that primarily served black students and Vietnamese students. And so I saw a totally different example of what the access to resources looked like and what kind of implications that had for generations of students and families, right interacting with high school students, seeing their parents, seeing their younger siblings, and seeing how all these things carry through. And so often when I approach policy work at the federal government or in my advocacy, I think back to my classroom and I think back to a specific student and yeah. What would it mean for that student to see someone like them, which wasn't me, to be honest, at the front of the classroom, or to learn more, right? I, I spent a lot of time teaching, frankly, teaching myself and trying to teach my kids at the same time a lot of the things that I missed out on. And so would love to see us how we think about addressing this at a district, state, and federal level um, so every teacher is not trying to do this on their own.
0: We've talked a lot about the background of public schools and some of the obstacles and also how you need to get that trust and buy-in. Uh, what is it going to take to really convince people and get buy-in that the public school system was set up for all children, for Black, brown, disabled, homeless, just to give every child that chance? Was it set up for all children? And how are we going to make folks believe that really it is?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we, we started talking about this a little bit, right, is that these systems and schools often were focused on staying as white institutions and pushing students of color out, sometimes legally, sometimes illegally, depending on what period of time we're looking at. And I think this goes along a little bit with your question about conversations we're having generally about racism and what students are aware of. I think it's important if, as we think about building trust to both acknowledge the history of what has happened and the work that needs to be done, and then make a concerted effort to go into those communities and talk to people about what they want to see in their public school systems. And it, that has to be a, a two-way conversation. And too often we have seen it not be a two-way conversation. We have been seen it imposed um, by leaders and not as much from the community and what they want to see.
0: So funding is important, but funding isn't enough.
1: <laughs> That's exactly right.
0: Are you optimistic uh, that we can come out of what has been <laughs> an incredibly challenging year uh, stronger, uh, stronger for the children? And and also I wanted to ask, uh, you know, COVID was so unexpected in so many ways. What is the catch-up plan and what is the preparation for anything else coming down the pike, another emergency?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you can't work in education or advocacy and not be optimistic, right? I believe so strongly in students and many of our educators that want to support students. And so I think that they can all succeed if we are providing the right supports. And so I am optimistic. I think in some ways COVID has shined a spotlight that always existed, but maybe everyone didn't see. So something like internet access... Anybody who works in education or advocacy knew that was a problem, but once everybody had to be at home on their broadband, they saw it, right? Access to early childhood and childcare have always been a problem. But what you saw is when everybody was working from home, or, and I should say everybody, we know many of our essential workers were still going in. But you saw a lot more people who had to figure out what, how to handle childcare on their own. And so I think in some ways it helps elucidate some of these challenges for a broader audience. And I'm optimistic that we can take some of that new learning and understanding and translate that into real action to close those opportunity gaps.
0: Yeah, everybody hopes that for sure because people always that cliche, children are the future, but that is indeed true. I want to thank you, Tara, for joining Equal Time listeners and giving them some of the obstacles in the area of education moving after a year of covid but also some optimism that folks like you are doing the work to try to make sure that all of our kids are educated in an equitable way. So thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. What's keeping me up at night? Tara Wallen, our guest today, is concerned about how we're educating the nation's children. And so am I. Ruby Bridges was just six years old in 1960 when she integrated a New Orleans elementary school, bravely walking in, protected by federal marshals and greeted by jeering white parents, some thrusting a small coffin holding a black baby doll toward her. This true heroine of American history, a role model at six, today chairs a foundation that promotes the values of tolerance, respect, and appreciation of all differences. She wrote her own story to share with young people. But for some parents in Tennessee, the truth of her childhood is too tough for their children to hear. Do they realize they're still trying to bar Ruby Bridges from school? Sad, absurd, and maybe just the beginning. I write about it in my Roll Call column this week. Check it out. Equal Time listener Sean is pregnant. Congratulations! And while she and her husband are excited, she wonders why he keeps bragging about carrying on his line. Isn't it her line too? And isn't she actually carrying the baby? Well, Sean, I believe you two can come to an agreement before the special day. And please, get some sleep. You'll definitely need it. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.